I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we're going to be talking about a subject that has garnered a lot of media attention as of late. Deep fakes. They're videos or images that replace one person's likeness with another, and they're often rather realistic. This has led to much concern over how deep fakes could be used for rather nefarious purposes, ranging from revenge porn to fake news. What's often less discussed, rightly or wrongly, is the potential positive, creative, and artistic uses of deepfake technology. Joining us is Stephanie Lepp, the creative mind behind the Webby Award-winning video series Deep Reckonings, which attempts to utilize deepfake technology to pro-social ends by envisioning controversial public figures like Brett Kavanaugh or Alex Jones having a crisis of conscience over their past actions. It's a series that deals with questions of redemption, social change, and how we can make a better world. Stephanie joins us to discuss how the Deep Reckonings project came about, the pros and cons of deepfake technology, and much, much more. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with Stephanie Lepp. Welcome to Parallax Views, Stephanie Lepp, who has a very interesting project. It's, I believe, a two-time Webby Award winner. And it's known as the Deep Reckonings Project. And it makes us sort of look at deepfake technology in a different way. Uh, sort of pro-social deepfaking is what it's been called. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, Stephanie, how are you doing? 
I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. And I'm excited to talk about Deep Reckonings. But maybe first you could um, give some of your background, your interest in art and social change and uh, the Deep Reckonings project and how it came to be. Yeah. Well, let's see. I um, How long can I talk for? Just kidding. Um, maybe I can start with a story that can help um, kind of contextualize where I'm coming from. So yeah, my first uh, my first kind of real activism experience of my life was very alienating. Um, I was a freshman in college, and I went with a uh, an environmental group up to Mendocino to protest the logging of the Northern California redwoods. And uh, some of you might remember Julia Butterfly. She was an activist who was living in a tree at the time. She lived in a redwood tree for. I think for almost two years uh, to protest the logging of the of the redwoods, and and we called her on speakerphone. <laughs> we called her on speakerphone phone from the protest, and she was kind of like giving us a pep talk, you know, like go into that city council meeting and tell those city council members to stop logging the red, you know. So um, so we go into the the meeting, um, and someone from our group was gonna was actually gonna testify at the city council meeting, and um, and I remember noticing two things. One was that um, I noticed that the people who we were protesting against, uh, who were the loggers, basically, and their families, looked like really humble people. Uh, a lot of them looked like they were immigrants from Latin America. A lot of them, they didn't speak English perfectly. And it, I, I just, it just kind of... It, it, I, I think my connection broke up for a second. You were talking about how a lot of the people there were immigrants. Could you repeat that? Oh, yeah, sure. It just the people that we were protesting against looked like really humble people. And uh, yeah, a lot of them looked like they were migrants from Latin America. And um, and so what what one observation I had was that I don't really want to be on the opposite side from these people. Um, I I didn't I didn't know how I would redraw the lines. I didn't know anything about sustainable development. But what occurred to me was I want to be on the same side as the trees and the people. So that was one observation. And then the second observation I made was that, uh, yeah, someone from our group testified, uh, and you know was testifying about all the species that would that would, you know, would be endangered if the redwoods were logged and the salamander and the spotted owl. And um, and I could just see the city council members' eyes just glazing over. It was like they've heard this a million times. This is not convincing them. I don't even know if what they need is convincing. Maybe they need. So I don't know what it is that they need or what would what would what would be effective in this context. But whatever it is, we're not doing it. <laughs> and so that um, that that also planted. I guess there were two seeds planted. One was how do I redraw the lines so that people and trees can be on the same team. And then the other question was, uh, how do people change their hearts and minds? And so that 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 question stayed with me um, and has been a thread, I guess, through my work ever since. So what led to your interest in tackling uh, the issue of social change for maybe, I, I would say what you're doing is sort of, um, it's a type of art, you know, uh, going back to uh, the Reckonings podcast that you did and the uh, imaginary conversation with the Pope um, or imaginary reckoning that the Pope has. But uh, what led your what led to your interest in art and the idea that it can be used in social change? Yeah, I mean, it was really it was this question of how do people change their hearts and minds that 
had stayed with me and I uh, through through various different uh, experiences with activism and social change and finally I decided to um, I, I started trying to research this you know how do people change their hearts and minds but I didn't even know what search term to use it's like worldview transformation is that even a thing I know behavioral economics is a thing but I'm not looking to find out what makes people brush their teeth more often you know I'm looking to to, to find out what moves people in really fundamental ways. And finally, and, and certainly there is, there is work out there. I don't mean to say that there's not a literature on this, but, but it, I, I finally just realized that this would be a really powerful question to explore in the form of stories as a podcast. And so I started a podcast called Reckonings that tells the story of how people change their hearts and minds in all kinds of ways. People who transform their political worldviews, people who transcend violent extremism, so every episode tells the story of someone who made some kind of a transformation. Uh, and uh, and since the early, and so I guess just to give a few examples. So for example, a, uh, a very conservative congressman who had what he would call a spiritual conversion on climate change, a, a white supremacist who managed to transcend a life of violence. Um, I interviewed the architect of Facebook's business model who... Um, who realized he was addicted to his phone and had a reckoning and has since devoted his life to tackling technology addiction. So it was, it, it's, it's been a diverse cast of characters, but the through line was an exploration of this question, you know, how do people change? And, and, and specifically, how do people change in ways that, that scale into broader social and political change? And so yeah, from because the I, early days, hmm. I, I was going to say, I think a lot of people view personal change and broad based social change is not necessarily or they don't always think of them as 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 too connected. And in some ways, yeah. I, I do think there is a difference between personal change and and broad based social change. But I, I think sure. sometimes they do cross paths. Well, they cross paths with people who have a lot of power. And so that was the thread to deep reckonings, right? So if you think about, so yes, when I think of social change, I too often think of, I think of social movements. I think of lots and lots and lots of people agitating for social change, but you could also ask who are the fewest number of people that if they had had an internal transformation that would result in broad-based social change. For example, if Putin had a crisis of conscience that would translate into social change. If if Charles Koch had a had a crisis of conscience, we could say that would that would that would that could change the climate trajectory of our planet. And so I started kind of fantasizing about a film. I was I was fan, I, I I had this wish list of guests that I wished I, I I wanted to get on the show. Let's say Charles Koch, um, and but I but surprise surprise he didn't call me. Um, and so I I started kind of fantasizing about this making a film that was that was Charles Koch's reckoning and how it ended up kind of changing the world. Um, and then I discovered the phenomenon of deep fakes. And I realized that you could actually make that. <laughs> and so I, uh, yeah, so I can keep going with where the project came from. So I, I decided to do, so deep fakes, for those of you who don't know, are we are now at the point with artificial intelligence and synthetic media where you can make it look like anyone is saying or doing anything, even though they never said it or did it. We are now at that point, um, which is 
sounds very terrifying and it is terrifying. And most of most deep fakes online are involuntary pornography where people just stick someone's face in a porn movie they never acted in. So understandably, this is a this is somewhat of a maligned technology. But I had come from this completely other direction to discover that it was possible to 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 make this film about Charles Koch's you know crisis of conscience and how it changed the world. But so I what decided would, uh, to prototype. What would, hmm. what would the Charles Koch <laughs> crisis of conscience have been about? Climate change, right? But, yeah, it would have been about climate. It would have been about. Um, uh, I mean, I would have to. I have to really get into because that's that's kind of the easy answer. The 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 more challenging answer, and I, I haven't written a script for him, would be something like because he thinks he's doing a good thing. He believes he believes in absolutely in his libertarian worldview. And he believes that it that that is what is going to set the most people free. Let's say yeah, I, that's, I don't that's very I haven't true. gone I... deep enough. I haven't gone deep enough into his, I, I never wrote a script for him, but it would be something about how I was like, if I were to speak in his first person, how I was so committed to the, the, the rightness of my worldview that I, um, you know, I, 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 um, I ignored evidence to the contrary or something. I held on to it so tightly that I, I ignored the circumstances in which it was not working or not, not actually conducive to the well-being of the most people. Or, or maybe I defined well-being too narrow. It would be something like that because I don't, I don't think he's, I don't think he's trying to be a villain. I think he, he thinks what he's doing is in the best interest of humanity. I think if I were to give him the best, if I were to see him in good faith, yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, th you know, I'm not like the biggest fan of, of Charles Koch, obviously, but Nor you know, he, he is. <laughs> well, he does. He does get he does. He has done certain work that I agree with. Like, uh, I, th I, you know, the Koch Foundation has done things around criminal justice reform that, you know, I don't think are, you know, all bad ideas. So I think like he is a libertarian ideologue, uh, but mm -hmm. I, I think he actually believes in what he's saying. And, and you know. It is it is sort of a different way to look at it, to say, hey, maybe these people actually believe what they're doing is good. Yes. Right. Yeah. So and that's what I learned from four years of interviewing people who've made all kinds of transformation is that for the most part, most people are not sociopaths. Most most people actually believe that what they're doing is is right, is righteous. And so and often what prompts the transformation, I'm thinking specifically of the two former white supremacists I interviewed, what often prompts the transformation is seeing the difference between who you think you are and who you actually are, or seeing the difference between the impact you think you're having on the world and the impact you're actually having on the world. That Seeing that gap is what initiates the process of transformation. But that also means, right, that for the most part, we think we're doing, we think we're having the impact that we believe in. Uh, and so th that's kind of the angle that I would have to come at, you know, otherwise deep reckonings would be parody or it would be satire. I'd be throwing this person under the bus. I have to, I have to kind of ask myself, what is the best faith explanation of why they are doing whatever it is that they are doing, which is still, I still have a judgment about what they're doing, but, but I'm challenging myself to, to, you know, articulate or elaborate or kind of get into whatever the best, best faith explanation of what that is. Yeah. So then 
in, in regards to deep reckonings, before you started doing the deep reckonings videos, these deep fakes with well, should I Cap explain what it is? Just because I didn't quite finish the, I don't know if you, well, no, if, no, no. Go ahead. If, um, I wanted to get into the the imaginary reckoning with the Pope, but go on and explain. Oh, a little yeah, bit more. yeah, yeah. That that would be the next. Sure, yeah. That that's actually the next. Um, that is actually kind of the next perfect next step in the story is that I started with an audio prototype um, on reckoning. So I, with the Pope, exactly. Yeah. So I, I wrote a script because, okay, so I had this idea. I want to make this fantasy film about Charles Koch. How would I ever do this? Let's start with audio. So I wrote a script, not for Charles Koch, but for the Pope. I think there was, there was a lot happening around that time with the clergy sex abuse crisis. And so I wrote a script. I didn't even use synthetic media. I just wrote a script. I had a voice actor perform it. And I and I I had never released fiction on reckonings, <laughs> so I didn't I I really didn't know what listeners were going to say. I said it was fake. I I said you know here's the imaginary Pope Francis reckoning with the clergy sex abuse crisis, and um, yeah, and to my surprise, people really loved it, and I even heard from survivors of clergy sex abuse who, knowing that it was fake found it really helpful to hear the imaginary Pope say the kinds of things that they would love to hear the real Pope say. So, yeah, so Deep Reckonings is the, now, now is the kind of the culmination of a years long exploration of how people change. And, uh, and it is a series of explicitly marked deep fake videos that imagine morally courageous versions of our public figures. So, for most example, controversial if, public figures in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, though it wouldn't really need to be. It wouldn't really need to be. I could, because it could really be anyone. It's really, it's really, although, I mean, I don't know how controversial Mark Zuckerberg is. Maybe he is controversial. Um, certainly Kavanaugh and Alex Jones are controversial. But, but the question, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg had a crisis of conscience, what would he say? And, uh, and it's absolutely explicit that the videos are fake because not only because I'm not interested in deceiving anybody, but also because that's, that's, that's part of the power of the medium is that you can know that what you're watching is fake. Like what you're listening to with the Pope, you can know that it's fake and yet it still influences you. And, um, and yeah, I can say more about the, maybe I'll just close with the, with the kind of the orienting question of the project is how might we use our synthetic selves to elicit our better angels? That's that's an interesting turn of phrase there, um, synthetic selves. So, uh, of course, we're talking about like sort of deep fake versions of these real figures. Um, but how do you think these sort of synthetic versions of real people can make us think differently about issues like moral courage, accountability, and also uh, just this idea of redemption? Um, because I, I think we're we're in a moment in our culture where I think we're having to rethink a lot of these things. Like um, we're having to think about, well, how do we get accountability? What's the point where someone can redeem themselves? I think we're thinking about those things a lot more at this cultural um, juncture that we're at um, social juncture. So maybe you could speak to that and how deep reckonings is dealing with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the project had kind of three intentions um and one of them is around this this issue of redemption that you're bringing up um where i'm coming you know where i'm coming from is that we're all used to let's say the 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 deny and deflect 
playbook, right? Like when accused, when publicly accused of wrongdoing, deny and deflect. Uh, and so one intention I had for this project was just to create an alternative playbook, an alternative playbook that's more beautiful, more stunning, more sexy, more powerful even than the deny and deflect thing, such that, and this might sound insane, but such that if Mark Zuckerberg were to watch his deep reckonings, he would say, oh, well, you know, that's hot. You know, that, that is the me that I want to be, which is absurd because putting words in anyone's mouth is inherently alienating, but that's still kind of the design brief I gave myself for the script, right? Could I write something that would not only be not alienating to the person, but maybe even inspiring, um, you know? And, and so the idea here is to make critical self-reflection look, look stunning so that, you know, more of us are moved to do it. Our public figures are moved to do it. We make more room for them to do it in public. Um, because especially now that we've lived so much more of our lives in public, we need more room to be wrong and learn and change and redeem ourselves and ultimately to grow uh, in public. And so that is that is very much one of the intentions of the project is to is to model another way of responding uh, and 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 beyond that, just to give ourselves more room uh, to grow in public. So it sounds yeah. like what you're doing in some ways is, it's almost like you're pushing back on a trend, I think, that we see, especially in the age of social media, where I think a lot of people feel like they can't be wrong. They're going to lose their audience if they're wrong about yeah. something. And, you know, that leads to everyone sort of doubling down. We can never be seen yes. to be wrong. We we can never be embarrassed uh, by having been wrong. And you're saying, well, maybe there's a, a different script we can use than that one. Totally. And actually, um, I'm actually going to quote the imaginary Kavanaugh here. So here is what the imaginary Kavanaugh has to say about that. He says, Me Too isn't just a reckoning with sexual abuse of power. It's a reckoning with how we deal with sexual abuse of power. For the high profile men who are credibly accused, it's a reckoning with how we are, or in most cases are not, using our positions of power to take responsibility and leadership. And for the Me Too movement, it's a reckoning with whether you make room for accused men to do that. So we all have a role to play here in a way. The, the, the public figures who are accused could respond differently, and the public can make room for them to do that. It, it, you could say it takes two to tango. It takes two to create room for us to grow in public. So maybe we could delve more into... The specific deep reckonings videos were uh, you mentioned Kavanaugh, Zuckerberg, and Alex Jones. Why did you want to hone in on those three specifically? And I know there's a lot to unpack there, but let's go through them uh, one by one. Um, do you want to go with sure. uh, Zuckerberg first or Kavanaugh? Well, it's more. I, I it was more. I had a long. It was more that I, I had. I had three criteria uh, that I used. One of them is their face has to be publicly rec recognizable. Otherwise, the deep fake isn't doesn't hit home as hard if you don't recognize their face. That's actually why I didn't choose to do Charles Koch for this initial series. So publicly recognizable face. Um, the second criteria was, uh, I, I don't know what to call it. It was something like social value or social impact. It's like the impact that this person's reckoning could have. Right, right now, I just mentioned Putin. Yeah, that would, <laughs> that would have extraordinary impact. Um, and then the third is, some element of believability uh, where it couldn't be just completely 
completely non-believable, Putin would be very hard. Uh, in that, actually, I don't think he would be that hard. Um, but um, I, I, I don't know who would be very, very hard. It's funny. It's like you think I, I was terrified to do Alex Jones, but then you go in there and you learn enough about people. And you just kind of see where they come from. Everyone has a story. Anyway, um, so those were the three criteria. Um, there are there are definitely some people I would never do. I would never do Hitler. I would never do Assad. And that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think they should ever be done. It just means that I could never do them in the spirit of the project. I can't do a good faith Hitler. I just, I can't. I have too much personal connection with that. Or it just, I, I would not be able to do that. Um, but you know, ultimately, I think, um, yeah, I think, I think, uh, like Alex Jones, you know, he's been in the news recently. I think, I think, I think the actions that these people, t- these people take, um, kind of um, expand or narrow the believability. <laughs> Alex Jones has kind of recently narrowed the believability of his, but um, but we're we're also operating in the space of of of. Uh, uh, of uh, the kind of uh, speculative fiction, so um, yeah, there. The, I, I still think there's some wiggle room with the people that I chose. So it's it's interesting. Yeah. You mentioned that you were terrified to do Alex Jones initially, and of course, uh, Jones has been in the news recently because of the the lawsuits that he lost with the the Sandy Hook families. You know, he he pushed a lot of these lines for people that have been living under a rock. He's pushed a lot of these lines in the past about, oh, Sandy Hook was a false flag operation to take our guns. And right. I mean, recently what he did was like horrifying. You know, he he was interviewed and saying, oh, yeah, it's all my fault. These kids are dead. And just like not really wanting to address why these families are, are upset with him. Uh, and it was sad to see him double down because, you know, you watch the deep reckonings video you did and i did think that was pretty powerful uh, but i guess what i wanted to get into i thought it was interesting what you said that- well just mm-hmm. just one thing on jones so the what i use the most to write his script is an interview that joe rogan did with him a couple of years ago and joe rogan actually did kind of try to elicit a reckoning from him and it's like the wildest 30 minutes it's the first 30 minutes of an otherwise four hours interview but it's it's a it's a wild thirty minutes of content because you can hear Alex Jones like wanting to go there and almost going there and then getting scared and pulling back and then going in a million other directions. So yeah, he doubles down within the context of a courtroom or something, but you hear him within the context of a Joe Ro- a conversation with Joe Rogan, which is where I have his deep reckoning take place. And the window of believability kind of opens a little more. But anyway, sorry, go on. What were you going to say? I was going to say, you yeah. said you found, you, you were terrified to do Alex Jones, but then you looked uh. into him more and you said, oh, maybe there is like, like you said, you sort of tried to get into his mind space. So like, what what did you find while researching Alex Jones yeah. that made you think, oh, maybe there's something I mean, redeemable about this person? I mean, Alex such an interesting character. He was, he started as nonpartisan. He was not on the right or the left. He was just anti, he would, he would give as much shit to George Bush as that, you know, he, so he was kind of anti, anti-tyranny. Um, and um, I, I, I'll even, be honest, not to interrupt you, but I'll be honest. I ahead. used to listen to Alex Jones occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. In the Bush era, because I, I didn't like the Iraq war. That was just my view. I was very against the Iraq war. And he was one of the voices that was saying that yeah. at the time. So mm-hmm. and I don't think he was saying it in this sort of crazy wackadoodle way that 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that, that, that he said stuff about Sandy Hook. So I think there, there was sort of a different Alex Jones. Totally. Such that he befriended um, Richard Linklater, the filmmaker, and is is in um, Waking Life. Richard Linklater and a kind of, Darkly. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So he has this, and he and he was researching. He was he was kind of consumed with and fascinated by kind of conspiracy theories in general, but across the political spectrum. Um, and I think his is a case. His is a very kind of classic and tragic case of audience capture, where he started kind of moving towards I think it was I think it was actually with Trump where he be, started becoming more of a partisan and aligned himself with Trump and then his he started getting um kind of reinforcement for, from his audience for that and it turned it evolved into a livelihood for him it was an identity it's a livelihood such that it would be re- it, not only would it be hard in terms of his identity to backtrack but it would it could actually be dangerous for him to bet if he were to make a if he were to have a public crisis of conscience he might get killed by someone in his eye so that would actually be something he would have to do really carefully and strategically and thoughtfully and kind of bring his audience along with him but um yeah i mean what you find when you go into alex jones is like i think he just got stuck he got stuck and the more that the media and people push on him the more stuck he got and the only person I've heard publicly try to kind of like create some room for him to question himself is Joe Rogan. Do you have any examples from that interview? Like when and you not were editing to say it. that he hasn't done horrendous, horrific things. And he, you know, his stuckness has manifested in Sandy Hook parents committing suicide. I mean, his stuckness is not, is not low stakes, but, um, but or I guess just to say, an explanation of his story does not whatsoever justify anything. It's just an explanation, but it helps us understand what happened and maybe how to prevent it and maybe what, what could be done. But sorry, you were saying, was there something specific? Was there something within the Rogan interview that you said, Oh, Oh, maybe maybe there is a capability for him to change. Um, You mean like a specific line or something? Yeah, Was there anything specific in that video? Um, I don't have it accessible, but um, if you give me a second, I could look for, Okay, this is a quote of Joe Rogan's. He needs some. He needs somebody to go. Alex, slow down. You had a real good point there. He even agreed with me. We talked about it. I said you just need like a rational journalist who's next to you to like study. He's he's like you're right. I do need that. I go. You need someone who just balances it out. Look, he was right about all this Jeffrey Epstein shit. That's a fucking fact. Alex Jones called this years ago, years ago. So that's the thing. It's like he is. That's what's so that's what's complicated about Alex Jones. Like even like so many of the claims he makes that we think sound outrageous, including the thing about the frogs, like there's a partial truth in a lot of these things. Yeah, the fact that he was talking about Jeffrey Epstein for years so it's like, and, and, and what happens is like, he, he identifies these things and then he puts it out there. And then the re- response he gets from the mainstream media, or as he calls it, mainstream, is, to- is total a hundred percent pushback. There's no, well, you kind of have a point there. Like this makes sense, but this other stuff, it's, it's what Joe Rogan was just saying. If, if that were the response, he might not, you know, but yeah, given such a hundred percent pushback, he kind of ends up make it it makes him almost more extreme 
it's like Alex Jones did not become Alex Jones in a vacuum is a, is another way to, which includes his audience and also includes, you know, the, the mainstream media. So then what was the difference maybe between doing the Jones video and then the, the Kavanaugh and Zuckerberg video? Like what, how is the, how is the <laughs> experience so different. different? Okay, go on. Yeah. I mean, they're also, by the way, I should also say this is one of the funnest challenges I've ever given myself. Like, I, I mean, not, I, I know, I mean, it's obviously there's a, well, I won't, I'll just say, yeah, to, 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 to try to find a good faith explanation and write something that would not alienate them and also kind of satisfy their critics. I mean, it's such a, it, it's, it, it was very challenging and a very, I loved writing these scripts as hard as they were. And Zuckerberg was absolutely the hardest. Um, but I kind of, the way that I wrote them, a, a template kind of emerged. I mean, the ultimate source of um, stimulus for me was the four years of producing reckonings, was having a sense of what a reckoning sounds like and what prompts a reckoning. But the, but the template that kind of emerged um, for the scripts was, it was a set of three questions. One was, uh, what is this person reckoning with? Which of course is like, what do I think this person is reckoning with? <laughs> but what do I think this person um, has to own? The second question was, what do I think happened? Like, what's the best faith explanation of why they did whatever it is that they did that I think they need to take responsibility for? And then the third question is, what wisdom did they come to? Like if this person actually were to have a crisis of conscience, this is true for all of my guests on reckonings. It's not just, they don't just like come to an apology. There's actually some evolution of their consciousness that they go through just by virtue of watching their mind change. And so, yeah, the third question is if this person actually were to have a reckoning like this, what what wisdom would they come to that they could then, you know, that would then teach all of us? So, yeah, I, I was curious, why was Zuckerberg uh, the most difficult one to do? I just found him the hard to the hardest, I, I, the hardest um, to find his heart. Alex Jones, for all of his insane, he, he actually wears his heart on his sleeve. It's very clear what he's feeling. <laughs> and that I, I was going to say thought, real. Real quick, I was going to uh, say, you know, uh, I know it's sort of like a, a fictionalized version of his life, but that that uh, David Fincher movie, The Social Network, I, I always liked that movie because uh, I felt like you could not. I mean, it's about Mark Zuckerberg, obviously, but I, I feel like it's kind of realistic in the sense of I don't think that many people have gotten inside Zuckerberg's head. You know, you don't yeah. really see his, I mean, in that movie, they try to sort of play with the idea that he is very guarded. So he doesn't really show his emotions. And I, I think that's very true. I don't think in real life we've seen Zuckerberg sort of uh, reveal himself in a lot of ways. Yeah. Which makes him hard to write for. Yeah. Because the easy way, the way he's often kind of parodied is just as a robot. But I, that's, I can't really do that you know, for a reckoning. <laughs> so um, he was the hardest to find. I found Alex Jones easy to find. I found Kavanaugh. I enjoyed writing that script the most, actually. Why is Kavanaugh's. that? Um, because I feel like he, um, the, I just, the, the, that one feels so doable. That one felt the most doable and that would have 
there's just such a great opportunity there. I feel like he, yeah. And this is something I could have, I could have totally imagined him. And this is just me, but giving this press conference and having it be a unifying moment for the country, for a lot of the country. I mean, certainly there are people on on the extremes who would never either forgive him or um, think he did anything worth apologizing for. But um, yeah, I, I just, I, yeah, I, I would, I could just imagine that happening and being helpful. So if we could, um, you know, I wanted to get more into like, the idea of deep fakes and, and where artificial intelligence is going with deep fakes, because I think there is, I mean, I hesitate to put it this way, but I've often told people that I think there's a knee jerk reaction against deep fake technology. Which, oh, there is. Yeah. For but sure. in a way I, I get why people do have this negative reaction to it because, you know, for all the cool stuff you can do with deep fakes, including what you do, you know, I've known some artists who have done harmless things like, um, you know, if you remember the Hannibal Lecter movies, I, I know someone that made a deep fake of uh, the second Hannibal movie, and they they put Jodie Foster back into the movie using deep fake technology. Yeah. That that kind of stuff is like pretty pretty harmless in my view, and kind of interesting, right? It's it, it shows there's artistic possibilities with this, but there also is that deep uh, deep fake um, dark side, I guess, where it can be used abusively mm. with invol- involuntary pornography and, and things of that nature. Uh, so. What do you think of of the debate about deepfake technology and how can we sort of show people the positive aspects of it more? Yeah, I mean, I think more broadly, I think we have, we don't really have a, this is going to sound horrible, but we don't really have a sophisticated way of thinking about the social implications of technologies. Like often, often technologies are framed as as either inherently good or inherently bad or neutral, and and the technologies are I think neither that's a inherently with a lot of good things. nor bad. No. Yeah, exactly. We, we think in terms of like a, a good bad binary, like very black and white. Yeah, but they're also not neutral. And so, what are they? Great question. That's that's something. And I, I mean, I can kind of speak more to that. But I think we do with deepfakes what we do with a lot with Facebook, with a lot. Yeah, I mean, most. You know, sure, when it comes to something like a hammer, there's pretty much kind of there's few use cases. It ha- it has a narrow range of what it can be used for or an atomic bomb, let's say. But for something like synthetic media or social media, it can be used for so many things. We just have to have a more complex way of thinking about its social implications. It's not even just that it has good sides and bad sides. It's 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 it has affordances it has it, and the context in which it is is developed and used really matters and if we're if you know you drop synthetic media into a highly polarized um population during campaign season yeah you're gonna get there, there's things that you can predict getting so context really matters here um but um yeah but i think people have knee-jerk reactions for I guess for for a couple of reasons. One is that, um, you know, misinformation is a major issue right now. So understandably, anything that can seemingly exacerbate that, which synthetic media can definitely do, is terrifying. And this, and and then yeah, and then I think the second reason is 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 what I said before that I don't. I mean, here I can um, maybe I'll just read a my favorite my favorite piece of philosophy of technology 
is an article by a philosopher named Langdon Winner, and it's called Do Artifacts Have Politics? And I just have the excerpt right here. I'm just going to read the first paragraph, and it'll give a much better articulation of what I was just saying. So in controversies about technology and society, there is no idea more provocative than the notion that technical things have political qualities. At issue is the claim that the machines, structures, and systems of modern material culture can be accurately judged not only for their contributions of efficiency and productivity, not merely for their positive and negative environmental side effects, but also for the ways in which they can embody specific forms of power and authority. So it's, a, it's an idea we kind of love, this idea that technologies have political qualities. Um, but what he does in this article and it's an amazing article. It was written in 1980, and it's still so relevant. What he does in this article is really interrogate that, like, how do technology, how do technologies have political qualities? How do artifacts have politics? What does that even mean? Is that even true? Is it true across the board for all technologies, or does it differ from for, for different technologies? So that I think that yeah, that would give us. Um, a different, a, a more nuanced, I guess, way of thinking about the, like the, the, the politics of synthetic media, let's say. I think that's a good lead into, there's also something happening now where I think we're seeing the uh, democratization of deep fake technology. Uh, what do you think that means? And what, what does it really entail? Because I'm, I'm not saying it's, it's completely democratized because you still need, I, I, I still think, there's a lot of people that don't have access to this technology, but I do think we're starting to see the the glimpses of it, so to speak. I mean, I think everything is going to happen. I think everything that we can imagine is going to, it's all going to happen. Um, I think both, I think there will, the, the term, I think the term is reality apathy. It's like when people feel so unable to even know what is real anymore because there's so much misinformation and synthetic media and conspiracy and who knows what out there that they just stop caring whether something is true or real. It's, that's the, ter the term is reality apathy. I think that will happen. I think, I think, and I think also um, on the other end of the spectrum, I think we'll also evolve our relationship with truth. I think maybe, I think we'll take the leap, or I hope, into our next enlightenment. Um, so I think it's all going to happen. I think things are going to get really dark and maybe hopefully also really light and maybe all, all at the same time and maybe different with different people. It's like, I don't, I don't necessarily think um, like all of humanity is going to go only in one direction. Uh, so I think, I think it's all, I think everything we fear and everything we hope <laughs> is going to happen with respect to synthetic media. It's really interesting talking about uh, the Deep Reckonings project, because to me, it's like, um, it's it's a positive use of it as compared to more negative uses. So for instance, uh, we, we talked about like the stuff like uh, people using deep fakes to do involuntary porn and whatnot, but there's also like people using it politically in a way that I think is like really right wing, like very far right wing. And, and so for instance, the, this Little Mermaid movie that's coming out that Disney's doing, uh, I saw that mm. there were some white supremacists that basically are using the deep fake technology to make sure that they can alter the videos so that the the black woman that was cast in it looks white in the in the um in the version that they want to do they want to deep fake a white person back into it uh, and to me mm -hmm. that's a very 
you know, just grotesque use of this technology. Whereas uh, you're showing that there's another side of it in a way. Um, so it, it can be used by forces for both good and ill. Yeah, I mean, that's yes. And as as I think is the case for most technologies. But um, but yeah, that is that is definitely that that is another intention of the project is is to kind of instead of asking our deep fakes good or bad or our deep fakes ethical is to ask under what circumstances, if any, can deep fakes be ethical and can you and, and can they even be benevolent? Um, where do we draw that line? I think I, you know, we can we can definitely talk about where I drew the line, but the point is I think it can be drawn. And so and I and I do believe it's possible to use deep fake technology in ethical and even right. benevolent ways. And so yes, one of the intentions of the project is to Kind of, and 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 Langdon Winner actually says that the first time a technology is introduced is when there is the most um, kind of opportunity to shape what its what its let's say politics will be. And so I do think now is a critical time with synthetic media, with deepfakes, to kind of define and fulfill and 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 expand um, the possibility space of the medium, and specifically expand the pro-social possibility right. space of the medium. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I, th- I think that's fascinating because I-, I guess what I was getting at is you have some people that want to use deep fakes to uh, push their political agenda of, you know, something noxious like racism. But you could also yeah. use deep fakes to have someone have a reckoning about their own racism. Yeah, You can use deep fakes to, you know, my husband works in addiction and you could you could work with your patient to script a deep fake of their sober self in the future, talking to themselves now, inviting themselves onto the path of recovery. You could, if you're scared of public speaking, you could deep fake yourself giving an amazing TED talk. I mean, this is like the sky's the limit in terms of, yeah. And that's more my interest is the, how do we use our synthetic selves to elicit our better angels or our more healed angels or our more confident angels. Um, but yeah, it's like all everything we're already doing and trying to do. And, you know, this becomes another tool in the arsenal. Uh, and not to say that it's a neutral tool, um, but yes, white supremacists will use it for their end, and I guess uh, artists who are interested in uh, redemption and making more room for ourselves to grow in public will use it for their end. <laughs> so, yeah. why do you think? Um, what What do you mean when you say it's not necessarily a neutral tool? Because I've thought about it before, and I I have thought to myself, this does seem like it's it's kind of neutral in the sense of it can be used for good and ill. So why why do you hesitate to say it's not necessarily neutral? Yeah, that's a really good question. I'm glad you asked. The reason I would say it's not neutral is because then what determines what it is? Is it exclusively determined by the context in which it's used? Like, is it that much of a blank canvas? I don't really feel prepared to say that probably about anything, although you could maybe convince me that there are some things that are entirely context dependent. I think what makes tools not neutral is that they have affordances and affordances is just the nerdy term for, I did study philosophy of technology in undergrad. So this is kind of my academic background, I guess, although this is a very long time ago, but affordances are the, um, what would be the definition of an affordance? An affordance is, is is like a characteristic of a technology that determines the way it can be used. Like you can't sit on an atomic bomb. You can't use that as a as like a chair. Like you know, like different tools have 
aspects of them that constrain and define the ways that they can be used. And so that's why I would say, and, and, and I guess I'll just, I'll just kind of expand this further just a little bit often, um, uh, often, um, claims about technology are, um, we hear claims about technology, like, you know, like Facebook is, is, is destroying democracy or, it's destroying our families. It's destroying our mental and emotional well-being. That's technological determinism. That is ascribing all of the impacts that Facebook has or a techn- to the technology itself, ignoring the context in which that technology is used. Right? Techno- like Facebook does some things in one context, and then in another context, it promotes ethnic genocide. You know, so context matters, but let's just say technological determinism is one end of the spectrum. The flip side is the, the idea that technology's impact is entirely driven by the, the context, right? Fa- this is Zuckerberg's argument. Facebook is just a neutral tool that's being exploited by bad actors, you know, whether they be, you know, the Kremlin or whoever it is. So that, that's social determinism. I would be willing to it might be the case that under some circumstances, technological determinism or social determinism makes sense as a way to understand what is going on. But I would say more often than not, it's it's the the technology itself matters and the social context itself matters. And that's and that's what Langdon Winner is kind of trying to articulate. I mean, he 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 goes much deeper than that, but that's a that's kind of a yeah. I guess just to offer something, so- yeah. So before we start closing out, um, you, you said uh, that you were interested in how deep fakes could help us evolve our, our ideas of the truth. And I wanted to delve into that. I had it bolded in my notes. Um, I said, I, I, you know, I wanted to deal with the relationship with knowledge and how technology maybe changes our relationship with knowledge. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah. And I know it's pro- it can sound like a... Um kind of a bomb to drop, evolve our relationship with truth. What does that mean? Right now we need to just rescue the truth. So yeah, what I would say, I mean, I understand why we are panicked about the fate of truth and deep fakes only exacerbate that. And even if we magically eliminated all deep fakes, we would still be in a post-truth crisis. And we would still be in a crisis of epistemic proportions. And I would say a crisis of epistemic proportions requires nothing short of an epistemic intervention you know we so and what i mean by that is even if we eliminated all deep fakes you don't need deep fakes to you just slow down the nancy pelosi's voice and then all of a sudden she sounds drunk this is from a video a while ago they're, they're called cheat fakes you don't need very much technology in order to spread all kinds of misinformation and so yeah bring on the deep fake detectors and fact checking and media literacy and all of that and and i would say we we need to evolve even just the way that we relate to truth. And I'll give a very specific example. So the end of the, the way that the Alex Jones Deep Reckonings video ends, and this is, I guess, spoiler alert, but you, you can still watch the video and it's, it's short. So this won't really spoil it for you. But the way that it ends is, uh, so Alex Jones has his, you know, Deep Reckonings, um, in conversation with Joe Rogan, and you know he has this kind of crazy assumptions, and then he kind of pauses for a second, and then he says, he turns to Rogan and he and he says, "So what do I do with this video?" And Joe Rogan says, well, "What do you mean?" 
And Alex Jones says, well, it's fake, but it's true. And Joe Rogan says, well, why don't you just pretend that this video is real? And, and Alex Jones says, well, that's crazy. And Joe Rogan starts laughing because isn't it hilarious that Alex Jones thinks it's crazy to pretend that something is, that's fake is actually real. <laughs> and then Joe Rogan goes, well, why don't you come on my show and do the real version? <laughs> and, and Alex Jones is like, okay. Um, but, so, but, so, but, the, but the question that's being posed there is like, what if Alex Jones pretending that his deep reckonings, fake, deep fake video was real is what allowed him to stop broadcasting lies or or what if him what if it was more like a placebo effect where he wouldn't say whether it was real or not you know like would we be prepared to sacrifice whatever value would come from alex jones and his transformation and maybe his bringing his audience along because it involved a lie like would we really be prepared to sacrifice that i don't know but i am willing to acknowledge that truth exists in tension with other values Truth is not the one and only value. And so, yeah, the, the, where I'm going with this evolving our relationship with truth is, yeah, being able to hold truth, let's say hold it tightly, hold it loosely, and sometimes hold it not, not at all. And, 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 and know that that's what we're doing, but um, be able to hold it in different, in different ways. So this leads into a really interesting point I wanted to get to, and I only just really thought about it, you know, now while while we were conversing here, and that's, do you think your Deep Reckonings project makes us maybe think about how, I think people think of truth as just being the truth, right? But I think mm -hmm. there's different kinds of truths in the sense of, you know, a fictional story uh, can tell a poetic truth or what the documentarian slash filmmaker of uh, Werner Herzog calls an ecstatic truth. And in a way, mm. I think the deep reckonings is telling an ecstatic truth. You know, it's telling mm. a truth through a, 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 a fictional scenario. Um, and mm -hmm. you're being honest about what the fictional scenario totally is. Honest. You're not trying to deceive anyone. So, yeah. but you are, I think you are getting it at, at a truth through that fiction. So maybe deep reckonings in a way allows us to think about how, uh, truths can be told in different ways. It, it doesn't just I need totally to be told with raw data. Yeah. 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 And I think, I mean, if you imagine a two by two matrix, it's like true, false, helpful, unhelpful, or something like that. I mean, you know, there is such a thing as a helpful falsity or something, or like a purposeful fiction is what I call it. It doesn't, it's not that all, you know, there's such a thing as a, we, we often, I, I think, just think in terms of true and false and everything false equals bad. Everything false equals lies and lies are bad. But what, what you know, what about, I, I don't know if this example will, will kind of work for people, but I think of virtual reality therapy, you're putting yourself in a completely fabricated environment that's not whatsoever true and maybe faking yourself into thinking that you have a, an, an, an arm that you actually no longer have that has been amputated, but that ends up helping you heal your, you know, you're, you're telling your body, you're telling your brain a lie that you still have an arm that you no longer have, but you're telling it for a reason. You're telling yourself that lie knowingly for purposes of therapy or, you know, for a therapeutic goal. I was going to say this is a more extreme example, but if you were to like, look at, for, for instance, like World War II history, there were 
you know, certain people uh, that were working for the Gestapo. I think the most famous example is um, this celebrity. Uh, he, he became an actor after World War II, but his name was Gert Frobe, and he's uh, Goldfinger in the, the one uh, James Bond movie of the same name. But he actually lied to his higher-ups to help um, uh, Jewish people escape uh, the, the ghettos they'd created. So he was, huh. you know... Uh, basically lying to his superiors in order to help these Jewish people escape. So, you know, in a way, I think he was telling a helpful lie. And there's other helpful examples, lie. but that's an extreme totally. one. But, yeah. Same exact thing in Ukraine today. Like we, you know, we're, I think Ukrainian propaganda has beautifully complicated our relationship with truth because we're all about truth ex until, oh, wait, you mean Zelensky is kind of, you know, kind of, you know, kind of, saying things that maybe aren't necessarily so true in order to keep morale high among his soldiers. Oh yes. Well, thumbs up to that. So then where do you draw the line? And then, I mean, and that's, that's a whole nother, that could, that could take us for another couple hours because that's where the nihilism will come in and say, well, then it's all about power. Truth doesn't matter at all. And I would say it's all, it's, I would say, I would say all of the above. I'd say, hold it tightly, hold it loosely and hold it not at all under some circumstances. And yes, who decides the circumstances? I mean, that is just the question, the perennial question of, of democracy. <laughs> uh, who's who decides or who's in power. But um, yeah, that, that, that's a great example. Those are great examples. And I do, I do think synthetic media in this way is an opportunity. It kind of forces us. It could, it could, in it could be forcing us to expand our relationship with truth. But a lot of what we're doing, a lot of what I see us doing is just doubling down, getting really scared and doubling down on a narrower definition of capital T truth. Right. And that's where we see, you know, you know, QAnon, 100 percent false. And, you know, vaccines are safe rather than something like, you know, vaccines have risks but we think their public health benefits outweigh their risks, except for under these specific circumstances. I mean, that's way more gray, but that's also way more honest. Or QAnon. Yeah, it is true that a small elite, you know, cadre of people have way too much power over the world. But guess what? It's not a cabal of Satan worshiping reptile lizards. You know, it, it's like we can acknowledge the partial truth. This, this, it, it's this, like what I've said, yeah. not to interrupt you, but it's like what I've no, said ahead. with the. Uh... QAnon types like I'll, I'll have a QAnon type person that like lives around here where I'm at right now uh, say, well, you know, how does someone like Anderson Cooper uh, get this big job at MSNBC uh, or CNN or wherever, you know, Cooper's working at now? How does he get this job when he uh, only had a degree in, I think, political science rather than um, media uh, or, or journalism? And I'm like, well, I mean, it helps to be a Vanderbilt, right? But that doesn't mean there's a huge conspiracy. But the, the grain of truth, I guess, is totally. that, you know, it, it's unfortunate. There are people that aren't afforded the same opportunities because they just weren't born into, uh, you know, wealth. So that's mm -hmm. the, like, really rational kernel of truth, but, I guess, yeah. in what but, some of these it, QAnon people think. But they, they take it yeah. to this extreme where everything's this satanic cabal, you know. Totally. And the rational kernel of truth, it's like, wow, if that's your, then join the club. There's so many of us who care about, you know, inequality <laughs> and the fact, you know, so that, that then, yeah, there's a, there's a movement waiting for you. Um, yeah. So um, yeah, that, that, that's exactly what I, what I mean when I, when I say expand or evolve our relationship with truth. Yes. If you have time for two more questions, I just wanted to get to these real quick. Uh, the first sure. is, 
what does art mean to you? And I know that that's like the most yeah. uh, stereotypical question someone could ask an artist. I've actually but... never been asked that question. I think that's actually a really hard question. Um, that's a great question. What does art mean to me? I, I'm going to give an answer that I think artists might not love. <laughs> and that is um, doing something for its own sake no other purpose other than itself, which is why I would qualify a lot. I, I think a lot could fall under the art umbrella. I think a lot of science that proves things that we don't need to be proven. I think of that as art. It's like, we didn't need the data, but it's pretty. <laughs> so yeah, I would say something done for completely its own sake. So then the last question I had for you was, um, what would you like to see come out of the Deep Reckonings project? Is there anything uh, that, that you want to do further with it? Any other uh, Deep Reckonings that we're going to see? And also, uh, do you want other people to maybe try uh, you know, writing their own Deep Reckoning <laughs> yes. scripts? I think the script writing is a great practice. I think that could, I think that could be a pedagogical practice and an educational. Write the script for the person that you wouldn't, you know, write the, the apology that you need from them. And actually, um, Eve Ensler, well, she formerly known as Eve Ensler, she's the woman who created the vagina monologues. She wrote an amazing book that's the apology her father never gave her for sexually abusing her as a child. Um, anyway, I think the script writing is an amazing exercise. Um, but in terms of what I would love to... Um, yeah, I mean, my I originally it was conceived of as a discrete project, as just a discrete series. But the most common question I get asked is, "Who's next?" <laughs> and so I I would love to turn Deep Reckonings into an ongoing series that that exists in dialogue with the news cycle, and 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 once you start looking at the news with this lens, you know the possibilities are endless, right? It's you know right now Putin is on the mind or Elon Musk is on the mind, but you watch the news and there there are there are possibilities all the time and so my 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 dream would be to um just to create the 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 deep fake send it to the person and say you do the real thing or we'll release the fake one if you want to do the real thing i'll help you do the real thing you can hear the entire reckonings catalog and really you know i i, I will help you do the the real thing in a good faith way and tell your story the way that you, the way that it feels, you know, it has integrity to you. And if you're not re ready to do that, then we'll just deep fake it till we make it. <laughs> I was going to say it really is endless. I mean, I, I thought about it for a second. I was like, you know, I could do a, so one, one of my big, um, you know, issues is, um, you know, issues like Israel, Palestine, or um, an issue like, uh, Saudi Arabia and some of the abuses that go on there um, or the Yemen yeah. war, you could do a, a deep fake script for, uh, or a deep reckoning script for someone like Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and I've, I've thought he's about doing that. He's one I could that, never actually. do. Uh, oh, right? really? Right. Yeah. He's yeah. one I, I just, I can't even go near that. But if you, yeah, if you want to like, and there's definitely a I story probably have there. trouble like, with I it too, no but idea. I thought about it. <laughs> yeah. No, there's, there's, I mean, the way that I, I, I mean, I, it sounds crazy for me to say I would do him and I would do Putin, but that's because, um, I don't know why, but yeah, with Putin, I feel like a conversation between him and Jesus is probably 
Cause then it's, then I don't have to say it's fake. It's like, yes, this, it's pretty obvious. He's having a conversation with Jesus and I know he has a relationship with Jesus. So, um, yeah, but yes, to your point, they're endless. So if anyone out there, um, uh, I, I, I mean, this is, this is an, this is an idea that I haven't really gotten to breathe life into, um, I would probably need a distribution partner. <laughs> so if anyone out there is interested, <laughs> be in touch um, on Twitter at Steph Lepp. <laughs> Thank you again, Stephanie yeah. Lepp, for coming on Parallax News. How can my listeners uh, keep up with your work and check out the Deep Reckonings project? Thank you. Thank you for asking. Yeah, Deep Reckonings is at deepreckonings.com. And I am pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me there at well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Stephanie Lepp of the Webby Award-winning Deep Reckonings video series. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash Parallax Views. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.